Greetings, listeners. Welcome to this Stepfolio Educational Podcast, sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim. This is Dr. Mia Carey, the Chief Collaboration Officer for the North American Veterinary Community. This is the third in our three-part series on vaccination. In this podcast, Dr. Adam Birkenhauer will discuss Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, and also a practical approach to client communication. We'll also explore disease transmission and pathogenesis, as well as epidemiology. With that in mind, we'll jump right into the first question. What are some tick-borne diseases that we have to worry about in our pets? That's a really good question. Lyme disease is probably the most famous tick-borne disease that people know about and has generated a lot of interest and, quite frankly, a lot of fear in both the veterinary and human communities. Lyme disease is caused by a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi and is transmitted by ticks. I want to emphasize, though, that it's just really the tip of the iceberg. There are several types of infections and diseases that can be transmitted by ticks to dogs and cats. And, you know, the next most common one that we're aware of is a disease called Ehrlichia. And this is a bacterial infection that's transmitted by ticks to dogs and cats. can cause anything from subclinical infections to life-threatening infections and has a wide distribution. It has a close cousin, anaplasma, which is transmitted by the same tick that transmits Lyme disease. And in fact, we've now realized that a lot of pets that previously were thought to have Lyme disease either have anaplasmosis or have both Lyme and anaplasma at the same time. Another infection that we have to worry about is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Many people have heard about that, but that is a serious and life-threatening disease of both dogs and humans and can frequently be detected and can be mimicked by some other types of bacterial infections. It's not just bacteria that we have to worry about in terms of tick-transmitted infections. So we also have protozoal organisms that can be transmitted by ticks. In dogs, particularly, we worry about Babesia. This is an organism that infects red blood cells, causes thrombocytopenia or anemia, and is distributed pretty widely throughout the world. I want to mention and remind people that it's not just dogs and people that get tick-transmitted infections. Our little furry friends, the cats, can also become infected with tick-transmitted infections, and it's important that we keep them in mind as well. So cats can be infected by both Ehrlichia and Anaplasma and have disease, which is very similar to what we see in dogs. And they have their own protozoal infection called cytozoonosis, also referred to as bobcat fever. This is a serious and life-threatening illness of domestic cats. It's originally found in the bobcat, and it's transmitted to domestic cats via ticks. And it's important that we keep in mind that both dogs and cats can be infected, and we shouldn't leave them out. So Lyme disease, in my opinion, is just the tip of the iceberg. There's lots of other infections that are important for dogs and cats, and it's great that people are aware but, but as veterinarians, we need to be reminding pet owners that there's more than just Lyme disease. And where in terms of geography are tick-borne diseases most common? In a nutshell, everywhere. 
in the U.S., there's not really a state or a region that I can think of where you don't have to worry about some sort of tick-transmitted disease. And the reason for this are at least two reasons. One is that there are several genera of ticks that transmit infections to dogs and cats. And the second is the ease of which we can transport animals and move them across state lines or even from country to country. In terms of the ticks themselves, we know that Ixodes scapularis, or the black-legged tick, is the primary vector for Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme disease. That tick is most common in the northeastern U.S. and in the midwestern region, particularly around the Great Lakes. That tick transmits both Lyme disease and Anaplasma phagocytophilum, as I mentioned before. Another tick that we worry about is the tick dermacenter. And this tick is the tick that spreads Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And this tick is common in both the southeastern and in some western portions of the U.S. And it's important because not only can dogs get Rocky Mountain spotted fever from this tick, but also humans can get Rocky Mountain spotted fever from this tick. So dogs can be a great sentinel to let us know if we should be concerned about Rocky Mountain spotted fever in people as well. There's a kind of a new tick on the block called Amblyoma americanum, or the Lone Star tick. This tick used to primarily be in the southeastern and Gulf regions of the U.S. And over recent years, due to global transport of, of animals, climate change, uh, urbanization, this tick seems to be spreading both north and east. And its region now extends upwards towards New England. This particular tick can transmit several species of Relichia to dogs, and is also the tick that transmits cytozoonosis or bobcat fever, that really life-threatening disease we talked about for cats earlier. The last tick I want to talk about is what's called the, the brown dog tick, or Ripicephalus sanguineus. This particular tick is a little different than some of the other ticks because it's co-evolved with canids, and it can go through its entire life cycle feeding solely on a canine host. And this means that this tick is usually found where dogs live. So that used to be dens or caves, and over time has evolved into dog houses, and unfortunately, in some cases, human houses. So this tick can cause infestations, and it really lives wherever dogs can live. So it gives it an extremely wide distribution, really worldwide. And once it gets into the environment, it can be very difficult to get rid of. In a nutshell, there's a number of different species of ticks that can transmit disease. Their distribution really spans the entire country, and each one of those genera can transmit at least one disease to dogs. The other thing I kind of wanted to mention is travel. So even if you're in a region that doesn't see a lot of tick-transmitted diseases, it's really important for us to recognize how easy it is to transport animals around the country. Tick-transmitted infections can come to you. So I was looking at a map generated by the Companion Animal Parasite Council, looking at some tick-transmitted diseases, and I looked at Alaska, a region that most of us don't think is probably an area that has a lot of ticks. However, they did see tick-transmitted infections even in that state, and presumably some of these infections are present in the dogs. 
that are not showing any signs and being transported to those regions with the owners. So it's important that we ask about travel history and even if we don't see those diseases in our area, they can come to see us. Thanks for that, Dr. Birkenhauer. What is the best way to prevent exposure to ticks as well as tick-borne diseases? Well, I think for starters is potentially avoiding where we know ticks are. So even though I've just said ticks can be everywhere, we know that it is most common for uh, ticks for dogs or people to acquire ticks when they're walking out in the woods or tall grass. So potentially avoiding those areas is important. But fortunately, we're very lucky right now to have an excellent array of products to prevent and kill ticks. So for dogs, we're fortunate to have topical, oral, and wearable products. So you can use a monthly spot-on product that is highly effective. You can give your dog an oral product, which will kill ticks. It's essentially very similar to what we've done for monthly or prevention for heartworm disease. You can give an oral product monthly. There are a few products that are can be used every three months. And then we're fortunate enough to have wearable products, so collars that are effective as well at killing ticks, uh, some of which can last upwards of eight months. I think it's important to avoid areas where we know there's high tick pressure. And it, for every pet, even if we're not in a region that's highly endemic for ticks, I recommend that they get some sort of tick preventative because these are also good at killing and controlling fleas in dogs and cats. I did want to mention again for cats, we're fortunate to have two products, uh, a topical tick control product as well as a wearable tick control product. So cats aren't left out of the equation either and we have some safe and effective means to prevent tick infestations in them as well. So let's talk about vaccination. Are there any vaccines against ticks or against the infections that they carry? Interestingly, there are people that are currently working on vaccines against the ticks themselves. I think we're a little ways out before we would see this for dogs and cats, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's an, another mechanism that we approach to prevent tick infestations and potentially reduce the risk of transmission of some of those diseases. On the disease side, you know, we mentioned several diseases, Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Babesia, and Cytozoan. Unfortunately, only one of those infections has a vaccine available, and that's Lyme disease or Borrelia burgdorferi. So we're very fortunate to have safe and effective vaccines available that can prevent Borrelia infections. And I strongly recommend the use of these vaccines if you're in a region where this disease is extremely prevalent. I think sometime down the road, I hope that we have vaccines against those other infections, but right now uh, we haven't been able to conquer those barriers yet. Last question of the day. What are the clinical signs that pets have when they have a tick-borne infection? That's a great question, and it's one that can be extremely difficult to answer because a lot of these infections are what I consider to be extremely sneaky. They are generally trying not to kill the host so that they can then be propagated and transmitted to the next host. And this means that they're hiding from the immune system, 
and the disease manifestations can be quite variable. The reason for this is that a lot of times it's when the dog or cat's immune system becomes, what I say, confused and starts to cause signs that look a lot like autoimmune diseases that are actually intended to be directed against the infection but end up hurting the host. And some of the most common signs that we see from this are inflammation of the joints or arthritis, so dogs that are showing up with limping. We can see dogs that have a fever. Interestingly, this is a fever that can come and go, so it's not a fever that is always present when the dog's temperature is taken. Some of the other places that can be injured are the kidneys. So if dogs have protein-losing nephropathy or kidney injury causing them to be leaky and leak proteins, I always worry about tick-borne diseases as a cause. Inflammation of the eye or central nervous system are also quite common, as well as decreases in blood cell lines. So all of the cells in the blood, the white blood cells, the red blood cells, and the platelets, the cells that are used for clotting, can be affected by this and be decreased. It's very difficult because tick-borne diseases can mimic other infections like autoimmune disease or cancer, and it's really important that it's considered and tested for because the treatment can be widely variable between the two, the, the three items. I want to also mention that a lot of dogs are actually apparently healthy when they have a tick-borne infection. As I mentioned before, a lot of these diseases are what I consider very sneaky. And it's for this reason that I strongly recommend that each and every dog gets tested for exposure to tick-borne diseases every year. And we're fortunate right now that we have tests available for Borrelia or Lyme disease, Ehrlichia, and Anaplasma. And similar to many people are aware for yearly heartworm testing, I recommend that each and every dog gets screened for exposure to these tick-borne diseases. This is important for a number of reasons. One, it allows us to know and understand what kind of tick pressure we have on our pets and in our area. And it also lets us know if our tick control products are being effective. Secondly, it lets us kind of know which dogs we should test and screen to see if they're sick. Some of these dogs may appear healthy on a physical examination, but if you dig a little deeper and do some blood and urine testing, you might find out that they're actually being affected by the organism. So dogs that test positive should definitely be screened further with CBC chemistry and urinalysis tests to look for some of the changes that these tick-borne diseases can cause. So in a nutshell, the spectrum of signs caused by tick-borne diseases is extremely variable, which means that they frequently come up as differentials and should be tested for in many pets, including healthy pets. And if we find these infections, it lets us know what's in our region, which dogs should be tested for, and potentially guide our treatment as well. Thank you, listeners. That's a wrap. Dr. Birkenhauer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on Lyme disease. We'd also like to take a moment to thank Beringer Ingelheim for sponsoring this Folio educational podcast. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the third and final episode in this vaccination series.